And are we working? We are, I think. Are we on, Pam? We are on. Pam is engineering today. So <laughs> she's getting in the, in the flow of the program. You know, welcome, everybody, to another edition of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my review, interviews, movie reviews in 146 different outlets, printing online in the U.S. and abroad. But every Monday, you can find me right here at 11 o'clock Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, live on Adrenaline Radio, where we go behind the lens and below the line with filmmaking, even some music, stage, and I guess that's it for now. Who knows what we'll come up with in the future. So, first of all, those all of you Star Wars fans who tune in every week for Brian's Star Wars Countdown, Brian is not here today, which is why the lovely Pam is here. Brian is off goofing off doing something. Who knows what? I guess we'll find out next week. But we've got a great show today. We've been on a roll the past few weeks with some really exciting guests in studio and calling in. Today I'm here in studio alone, but calling in one of my favorite, favorite effing friend filmmakers, Quincy Rose. You, those regular BTL listeners will remember Quincy has been on before with his first feature film, Miles to Go. And we teased his second film that was just setting out on the festival circuit. Friends, effing friends, effing friends. And that is exactly what that film is. Friends, effing friends, effing friends. Um, it is hilarious. It is so much fun. And I'm thrilled to have Quincy back to talk about the film because now... It's not just on the festival circuit. Everybody, the film is available for everybody to get now. And Quincy's going to be able to tell you all about it. And we're going to talk about the journey of Friends, F and Friends, F and Friends. I just like saying that because I think it's fun. Um, and I have great love for this film, not only because of, of Quincy, but one of the stars of the film, Taylor Dawson, is also one of the lead actors in this little film called Bunker that uh, I was one of the executive producers on, along with Molly Elfman and written and directed by Ned Airbar. So I'm thrilled to uh, be talking about this film. And also in Friends F and Friends F and Friends is Graham Skipper, who is in a really creative new horror film that's currently on the fest circuit, Beyond the Gates. Anybody out there that loves horror, if a festival is coming near you and Behind the Gates is there, See it. I can't recommend that highly enough. And it also stars, you know, our friend Barbara Crampton, uh, who has become a horror icon in her own right. And speaking of horror icons, um, at 1130 today at the half hour mark, we have the wonderful co-writer and director of Phantasm Ravager, David Hartman. Last week, Don Coscarelli was with us, the godfather, the guru, the creator of the Phantasm franchise. Well, for Ravager, the fifth and final film in the franchise, or maybe not, for those of you that see the film, you'll understand why, why I say that, um, Don passed the directing reins off to David Hartman. Uh, so David makes, essentially makes his feature debut here directing Phantasm Ravager, and uh, we're going to talk to David all about that. Uh, David comes out of the animation world. Uh, he has done amazing, amazing work. Transformers, uh, Robots in Disguise, 
Astro, the Astro Boy reboot in 2003. He did an animated sequence for Don Coscarelli's John Dies at the End a few years ago. And, of course, my favorite work that David has done up until now, directing and animating My Friends Tigger and Pooh. Okay? You cannot go wrong with Tigger and Winnie the Pooh. So we're going to hear from David how you go from Tigger and Winnie the Pooh to Phantasm Ravager and Spheric Balls and the Tall Man. But before all of this fun stuff starts happening, we're going to take a short break and you're going to hear all about Vidiots and their new Indiegogo campaign. Friends and film lovers, Vidiots has launched its first Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign. That's right, Vidiots, the one-of-a-kind video store experience located in Santa Monica, California, wants you. The campaign continues through October 19th, and backers will support Vidiots' upcoming film preservation, education, and community initiatives. Donors will have the opportunity to snag exclusive perks like a filmmaker spotlight, curating their own in-store recommendations rack, hosting their own screening in Vidiots' 48-seat micro-cinema, or even taking over Vidiots for a cinematic in-store sleepover party. Go to igg.me backslash at backslash Vidiots and get involved today. Vidiots is a recognized 501c3 nonprofit corporation. Get involved and get going to Vidiots. And... We are back again. And folks, I can't, I can't encourage you enough to get involved with Vidiots. It is a store, it is a foundation and a store that is very dear to my heart. Thanks in large part to the wonderful Maggie McKay. Maggie and I have known each other a number of years through Film Independent. Uh, Maggie helps spearhead the annual Ed Elias Future Filmmaker Grants at Film Independent, which may be moving over to Vidiots now as part of their educational program. Uh, but that's a little bit down the road, so we'll keep you advised and apprised. Vidiots really is one of the last video stores around. It's a third in Pico in Santa Monica here in Los Angeles. They have a $55,000 a $55, title library that is absolutely amazing of Blu-rays, DVDs, and VHS tapes. Um, VHS tapes, a lot of them... Everybody thinks every, everything has gone on to DVD and Blu-ray. It hasn't. Uh, and that's one of the great things that Vidiots does is they actually are preserving a lot of these titles that have not found their way to conversion yet and may never. Um, so it, the, big part, the big thing that they're now doing is reaching out beyond doing in-house screenings. And some of them are great. You know, you heard Theo Taplitz on our show not too long ago, and Theo stars in Ira Sachs' film Little Men. Theo and Ira were at Vidiots for a special screening. Uh, every week, there's, there are more events going on. It truly, they truly are championing film preservation in various forms, and also educating and helping not only the video consumer, the film consumer, but on the educational front with young filmmakers. So it's going to be exciting to see how that plays out. So you can go to, as, as the PSA says, you can go to igg.me backslash AT backslash Vidiots or go to vidiotsfoundation.org and you can see all the upcoming events, everything that's happening. Uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. You know, there's something else I want, I want to kick out there today for all of our Last Ship fans. 
and I know there are many of you, one of the fan-run sites uh, out there, uh, Last Ship TV, has just started, kicked off a brand new website uh, for The Last Ship. Uh, you can find it at lastship.tv. They're also on Twitter, at Last Ship TV. Great bunch of guys who run this site, devoted to the franchise, devoted to the series. Um, they've got new news announcements up there. They're going to have be posting some interviews shortly. Uh, one with Al, our friend Al Coronel, who was just here along with Emerson Brooks on uh, what was it? Uh, the week after Labor Day. So give them a, uh, take a look. Check them out. Lastship.tv. Um, I think all the Last Ship fans are really going to like what they see and where the site is going with the information that the guys are imparting. So that's that. And now I think we have time to do one clip. Uh, you've heard me talk about Snowden. I'm a big fan of what Oliver Stone has done with Snowden. Um, one of the great things, and he wrote the screenplay. But part of writing that screenplay, this is an, a, a standard screenplay when it, with Edward Snowden involved. Because of charges, pending charges under the Espionage Act, it's very constraining as to what you can tell, what you can't tell. Anytime you get legal, legal things, pending legal matters involved, it kind of puts a, a damper on filmmakers. And in the case of Oliver Stone, we all know Oliver does not like to have dampers put on him. But not too long ago, I sat down, I got to ask Oliver about any constraints that were on him with the Espionage Act in writing and in visualizing Snowden. Here's what he had to say. Oliver, I wanted to add the, the fascinating film. It is, it's absolutely wonderful. How did, and your story's construct, I love how you bookend it with pressure point early on when we get to the pressure point that's a defining point for Ed before he divulges. In light of the Espionage Act and the current charges that are pending, were you, did you have your hands tied at all in constructing this story mm -hmm. and what you could and could not include and then visually also show? Very good question, uh, and uh, certainly you have to analyze it, but uh, you know, I had admired political thrillers always and made some, and uh, going back to the 70s, but uh, the uh, Edmund Cherry candidate in the 50s, I consider JFK a political thriller. Uh, so is uh, State Enemy of the State with uh, 1999. Very, very impressed me. Of course, not realist, but impressed me. So did uh, War, War Games. I love those films. Uh, but I, I think here I'm constrained by reality. And those realities, I, we could have pursued uh, the Snowden. We had two books. We had the Russian fiction book. And we had the uh, the Guardian book. We could have pursued the uh, the fictional course. It would have been okay because he was in Russia. He could have been pursued by assassins, this, that, avoided it. Or he could have been, I thought at one point, we could send him back to the United States and he could hide in the United States. That would be very clever. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of ways you can take the story. But uh, we didn't, because we got to know him. I made three three visits in the early part from January to May of 2014. And that's where we agreed, you know, after being wary of this story, I didn't want to get involved in something overly controversial that could backfire in my face. I'd already been involved in the Milai Massacre and the Martin Luther King movie, so I'd been kind of burned uh, out. And I didn't want to get into a mess and not 
make a movie after a year of work again. So well, anyway, I got involved, and he would tell us only certain things. He can't talk about other things. So, but he gave, often suggested ways to do it and ideas. Very interesting young man. Does that answer your question? Yeah, and the then constraints just, that we and have. then following visual, your visual constraints as well. Oh, yes. Oh, the idea uh, we when we when Kieran Fitzgerald and I made, wrote the first draft was let's stay with two storylines. Let's stick to Hong Kong because that is a pressure point, as you say. Uh, whether this thing would get published, this is a big deal to get published because it was you know the James Risen in two thousand four had the story of mass eavesdropping, but the New York Times buried it for a year and a half because the White House asked them to. Uh, and that was a, it's a dirty story. But uh, Snowden brought us the evidence, the evidence, and he can't deny it. And it's so thick, this evidence. I mean, they've only released 90% of it or, so, or 10% of it, but I'm saying it's so thick that people don't even understand the implications of what he released. Not only is it about mass surveillance, not only illegal mass surveillance, unconstitutional mass surveillance, but it's also about cyber warfare. The whole Japan sequence is about that. And that is the most dangerous. It's like revealing the atomic bomb in 1945. This is the Nagasaki moment. And Hayden was boasting about it. Michael Hayden was boasting about it, if you remember, bragging about how he initiated the moment. And he didn't take credit because he didn't want to officially admit it, but he said he was so happy about Iran having problems with their centrifuges. Well, we unleashed a, a, the worm the worm that continues to this day, this thing is going to get, is very dangerous. The, it was not a successful operation. The Iranians got their centrifuges up within six months. The problem was that the, the worm didn't stop. It just kept going and people picked up on, oh, the U.S. is using cyber warfare. Now we're going to use it. So the world is much more dangerous as a result of our stupidity. Uh, and this is what's, it's not in the, you have to read into it, but that's what Snowden was talking about. And in the movie too. This is a very dangerous game. In the last week, uh, we got hacked. The U.S. got hacked to the NSA, which means everything they stole from you, they, everything they know about you, is now known by whoever the <laughs> is who, uh, who, uh, who, who hacked the NSA. I love it. You know, it's crazy time. We don't really, they cannot provide your, with security. They cannot protect you. And this is a thing most people don't know in the United States. And that was the infamous... Oliver Stone, and especially in light of last night's political debates, I think a lot of what Oliver was talking about when I spoke with him is extremely relevant today and uh, relevant to us as a country, especially with what we've been hearing the past 48 hours or so. But right now, what we're going to hear is we're going to hear from the wonderful effing friend, Quincy Rose. Hey, Debbie, how you doing? I'm fine, Quincy. How are you? I'm doing okay. As I, I, I forewarned you, I have a little bit of a cold I'm battling, but I'm on the better side of it. But my voice sounds strange. But other than that, I'm doing all right. Happy to be on your show. Thanks for having me on again. You know, I'm, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. Always. You know that. And I'm just... Yeah, I'm, but it's such a pleasure to chat with you. Oh, same here. I'm, I'm so excited that because I got to see Friends Evan, Friends Evan, Friends just before you were starting out on the festival circuit. That's right. And as you were still promoting Miles to Go. And this one, I got a taste of it then, and we briefly talked about it before. But now, friends, F and friends, F and friends, everybody can now get it. 
That's right. It is, uh, <laughs> to do the plugging very fast, it is on uh, uh, iTunes for pre-order right now, which you can, you can find those links by going to uh, uh, friendseffingfriendseffingfriendsmovie.com or to quincyrosefilms.com. Either will find you and take you there. And you can pre-order it today, but it comes out tomorrow. Uh, it will be on iTunes, of course, as well as uh, a multitude of other VOD platforms and cable VODs in United States and Canada for now. And this is through Gravitas Ventures, which we're very excited about. You know, and Gravitas has proven to be a real friend to the indie filmmaker. I can't tell you how many. And I think you know, because you listen to the show, you know how many filmmakers, these little independent films like yours, um, you know, like, you know, Michael last week, you know, Gravitas is picking them up, giving a home. To That's right. These films—they're really a good. Um, they have like a good business model for for independent films, and they understood the VOD importance ten years ago when they started. Shortly before iTunes launched its um, online movie mm-hmm. uh, stuff going on, I, I think iTunes recently sa- uh, celebrated ten years, and they started doing packages online. Uh, and Gravitas celebrated ten years shortly before that, but. I only mention that because, you know, movies like ours, these independent films, while we might get a limited theatrical run like uh, Michael David Lynch you're talking about with Dependence Day, which is right. such a great film, um, and is in Los Angeles right now in the Lemleys for a week, uh, it's, it's um, most likely for us that our films will live their majority of their lifetime on, uh, online, on VOD and streaming services. So... You know, Gravitas kind of got that at the beginning, what they were trying to do, and, and have really expanded upon that. They do have theatrical releases as well. They but, certainly um, do. Yeah, but for films like uh, my film where it might do okay or it might not, but, it, you know, you have to weigh the benefit versus the cost. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, you know, uh, yeah, really great company. They have a lot of uh, interesting films that they get out in the world, a lot of really great indie films that I, I always enjoyed watching and when you see that gravitas sign in the beginning you know that uh it's it's going to be an indie film worth checking out for one reason or another mm-hmm. even if you don't end up loving the film there was a reason they took it on and, and you can usually see that oh very easily and definitely with friends f and friends f and friends which you know i wanted to it to have a distribution deal immediately when i saw yes. it <laughs> because You're such a champion and this is a film you really do want to see at home with a bunch of friends Rather than, and I think rather than in a theater, just because of yeah, the, I mean, the very nature of the film, which you're going to explain to everybody tactfully. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Um, well, uh, and and I do agree. I think I think at home with a group of people. See, if you're like me, I like watching movies alone anyway because I don't like people bothering me. I don't want somebody chit chatting or looking at their phone. Um, a or, man after my own whatever. heart. Yeah, so, so, but that said, having seen it in several theaters because of our uh, festival circuit run, um, I will say that when a group is laughing, it's, it's contagious. So it, where you think, oh, gosh, this is going to be a rough, you know, uh, um, watching or whatnot, then uh, it, it can sometimes be, you know, become a bigger, better thing just because of a group. So I would say at home and with a group, like you suggested, um, 
And the film, tactfully as I can be, is really <laughs> what the title says. But to be more specific, it's, it's about a group of friends who are, um, you know, sleeping with each other and justifying their behaviors um, uh, by some inside knowledge they have of the friend whom they're cheating on uh, or cheating with. So essentially... Uh, each character knows that another character is doing something wrong, so they justify their own behavior. Um, and also, it's about sex amongst friends and sex and love amongst friends and how the grass always seems to be greener on the other side and, you know, uh, getting carried away and, and kind of acting as if you were still a 17-year-old mm-hmm. wild child instead <laughs> of, a, you know, late 20s or early 30s, um, you know, responsible, respectful adult in a relationship well and it's just and the way that this, you tell the story and the way you interweave all of the characters your primary characters you've got jacob steve sarah laura camille and everybody intersects with everybody else and it plays out like so many people that you know that you, it, yeah you know that's the funny thing is is uh, as outlandish as it might seem at first or if if you start thinking about it, like people of the, 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 like the thing I hear the most is, wow, that's like my friends group, um, or went through that in my early twenties in college, or, you know, at some point experienced being one or both or all of the characters. And, and that was kind of the, the challenge to the film was I didn't want anybody to be like a terrible character. There's one person mm-hmm. in particular, uh, who kind of starts off the worst and, you know, does he come around to being better? Who knows? I'll leave that up to the audience. But, you know, none of the people are bad people. They're making bad decisions at times. And, and uh, you know, um, that's kind of one of the themes I wanted to explore was the duality of within a person that you could be a good person and make a bad decision um, and get carried away in the moment or just not think things through all the way and most of all, justify. Because people, you can justify so many things um, until you can't anymore. And basically that's what the film explores. And, the, and in and of itself, just with the, with the basic escapades that go on and, uh, you know, yeah. friends and the, the normal relationships among friends, there is so much humor in here, so different than your first film, Miles to Go. <laughs> which is opposite ends of the spectrum here, Quincy. And it's very easy in seeing Friends F and Friends F and Friends that the, com- the comedic gene did not fall too far away, uh, you know, from your dad. <laughs> well, thank you. I take that as a huge compliment. And, um, you know, it's funny because uh, you're right. Miles to Go was absolutely a drama. It definitely had comedic moments, as you know, any drama should, um, uh, so that we know the people that we're dealing with are not just you know walking around with their, you know, like uh, you know, just yes. in misery all the time. <laughs> um, but it was a dramatic character study and and had moments of comedy. But this is a comedy that has moments of drama mm-hmm. and or is a dramatic comedy, but. It was intended to be funny where there's extreme drama as opposed to uh, just totally dramatic. However, Jillian Lee, who plays Laura and does such a fantastic job in this role um, uh, because she has to be broken up the whole time, constantly, you know, (laughs) just falling apart and 
it, her nerves and neuroses are just out there. She wears everything on her sleeve. And she cries and so well. Tough, yeah, tough role to play. And, you know, so there's times where you actually feel for her and you're not laughing where I intended for it to be funny. But that's just a bonus because, you know, she does such a wonderful job. It should be dramatic yeah. at times. Um, and Tyler and, and, and uh, Tyler Dawson, who plays Jacob, and, and uh, Graham Skipper, who plays Steve, are just so funny together. And Christina Gooding, who plays Sarah, kind of balances everybody out, but mm-hmm. she's not innocent. And uh, that's one of the things I like about the film is nobody's purely innocent. Um, and, uh, and then Vanessa Dubasso, who rounds out the cast playing Camille, is just so funny. Um, she's young and fresh and... And she has just she just the way she says things is so funny. Um, so there's there's you know the whole balance through it, but uh, it was intended to be comedy. So I, I'm you know that's always a huge compliment to say anything like that. It's even remotely uh, in line with something my father might have done. You know, and for those the for those who are newcomers to the world of Quincy Rose, his father, the legendary Mickey Rose. And, yes. Uh, yeah. And then you know who palled around with some guy named Woody Allen. Yeah, yeah a little no, unknown uh, filmmaker who never quite made it out of the seventies. Yeah. Uh, no. Uh, yeah. So my dad wrote Bananas and Take the Money and Run, as well as uh, like What's Up Tiger Lily, and a lot of Woody's. He co-wrote a lot of the comedy that Woody was doing prior to going into films, and um, yeah, and my dad also wrote for a lot of other stuff. Very. If you're familiar with Bananas and Take the Money and Run, or even What's Up, Tiger Lily, you you understand that abstract kind of humor he had and uh, um, uh, just just a really interesting thinker uh, and very funny, Uh, always accused of being very funny by funny people. So that's that's always a a good thing. So I want to ask you, Quincy, when you have a, a story like this, a script like this, you know you're going to be directing... How yes. do you approach this visually? Because your visual tonal bandwidth is totally different than what you did in Miles to Go. And that's commendable yeah. because so many directors, they establish a, a visual format. A perfect example might be, it might be Woody Allen because Woody is known for, here's a box. We're putting the cameras here. You guys do whatever you're going to do within this box. Um, but you have very distinct, and you see that carried through films. You, both yeah. of your films are shot completely differently in terms of tone and style. Yeah, I mean, I would say if you look at Woody's whole um, oeuvre of films, his you know it's it's he's very different in a lot of them, and he's just consistent with wanting to tell a scene in a single take. And so, but if you get into a film like you know. Um, uh, uh, interiors is different than than husbands and wives mm-hmm. or something. And husbands and wives, he he goes free and breaks everything. And in this film, the intent I knew that this film just the um, the what was the word I'm thinking of, but the, the uh, energy of it needed to be handheld. So it, it was just mm-hmm. it's a character performance based film, and it needed to feel like you were within with these characters. Mm-hmm. So I knew we were going to be entirely handheld, and and there's only three shots that are not, which we referred to as like the postcard shots while we were in there, and they're very specific shots chosen for specific reasons. And um, 
but the majority, the energy had to be moving. And, um, you know, when, when you go handheld and it's not locked down, if you have a slightly slower scene, but there's a little bit of motion on the camera, and not nauseating motion, but just a little, right. a little movement, it, it helps the viewer watching not feel so stuck in what's going on. And, um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, with what Woody does, he's, he's, just, he's just kind of the master at making you think everything's the same, but it's not. And uh, he's um, uh, just so far along in, like, how to set a camera up yeah. in an area and have a scene play out in a, even a small space, but have it be very interesting. And a lot of those moments are kind of reflected in, things I've done where I'm trying to do that. Uh, it, it, we even had a scene in Friends of Being Friends where there's, there's two guys having a discussion in an apartment and the, the camera stays, you know, just basically still. Mm-hmm. Uh, our DP, Howard Wexler, who's just fantastic and such a strong person because physically, because it's not easy to shoot handheld through a whole quick shoot like this. And he was able to offer us so many options in the visual aesthetic as whether we wanted a little shaky or dead still or mm-hmm. just a little motion or extreme motion whatever it was different angles and uh you know we got to play around with some of those ideas but uh yeah entirely handheld so i knew that's already different than miles ago which had some handheld some steady cam and some lockdowns like a more traditional mm-hmm. style film but not very traditional but you know um so it's just i feel like it's just choosing what's what's right for each film. Um, I'm not to ramble on, but I'm, I'm getting ready to shoot, uh, my next film starting tomorrow, actually, um, out here in New York. And at first I thought, Oh, this should be handheld because we're in New York, et cetera. And we're doing some walking and talking mm-hmm. and all this stuff. But then as I thought about it longer, because of the, there's a, some very specific aesthetic things I'm choosing to do with this film and, uh, that are very, uh, not experimental, but unorthodox in the way I'm shooting it. And so I was talking it over with my DP um, and it just occurred to me, I said, you know what? I I think this one needs to be entirely on sticks because what we're trying to do aesthetically with the city, it'll lend itself to just being still making people have to look at what we're showing them instead Mm -hmm. of getting distracted by any movement of the camera, et cetera. Really putting the focus on what you're looking at and what are you listening to, and that's the whole point of this new one I'm doing. But with friends up being friends, it was supposed to be fun and moving, and you know, fast. It was supposed to feel fast and energetic, and hopefully, we accomplished that. Well, I definitely think you did. I mean, and you create a great intimacy also with the handheld, so that it's very immersive when you're watching the film. You feel like you are in the room with these people. You are part of this group of friends. Oh, great. That's what we were trying to do. Yeah, I mean, it really plays so nicely, Quincy. You know, really, oh. really well. Really well done. I mean, it's... Well, thank you so much. And, and you know, it, it's, it's, it's always funny with a film like this because you know it's not going to be everybody's flavor. Um, and so far, those are the kind of the films I like to make because the films I even enjoy going to see are the ones that kind of get a... Um, split across who loves it and who doesn't, uh, whether or not you can debate if the filmmaker themselves are any good, but the film itself, you know, sometimes you don't really care if a film was made great as long as you enjoyed the story. But, you know, in this film, I think sometimes the subject matter rubs people the wrong way. And um, to me, that's interesting because 
it, it usually rubs them the wrong way because it feels real, not mm-hmm. because it's just done poorly. And uh, to me, that's a compliment. So I do know that it's not going to be everybody's favorite, but I kind of get a little kick out of that as long as they're just not, uh, you know, ambivalent about their feelings on the film. But because, um, you know, as an artist, we're always looking for a reaction. But um, I have been very uh, handed many compliments just in relation to the sense that the dialogue is realistic. People mm-hmm. feel like these characters are real and people they've experienced or been in the past. And uh, so I'm really excited for it to get out there, you know, and, and uh, let people watch it and cringe and laugh. And like you said, in a group, have a little wine. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you have uh, glaucoma, have some marijuana, you know, that <laughs> medical stuff people enjoy. And, uh, but only if it's medicinal. That's right. And, uh, you know, and just kind of go for the ride. But make sure you're, you're in a healthy place in your relationship or that none of this has come up recently or else oh, yeah. you might be in for a little bit of an argument afterwards. Yeah, no, no, no. Healthy relationship people only or extreme singles. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, my friend, and, yes, I was going to say, I mean, we're, I, I have Dave Hartman on, on the other line now holding to follow oh, up. Oh, amazing. To follow up you. I, I, I used Oliver Stone as an opener to you. You. Amazing. And, and now, you know, you got Phantasm Ravager coming after you. So cool. And I looked up his trailer. That trailer looks fantastic. Oh, I, I haven't seen the film. I'm not 100% familiar, but that film. The trailer looks incredible. I was like, "What is this? This is when was this made? It's amazing." I think you. So, I think you'd really like Phantasm Ravager. Oh, I'm gonna check it out for sure. And I think uh, Graham Skipper, who's in my film, is aware of it because he's big in the. Uh, well, and Graham, I don't want to call it just horror it, world, but horror and sci-fi. But Graham is um, also he's in the film Beyond the Gates, that is a fabulous horror film. Yeah, he's in Beyond the Gates. He's also in. Um, uh, almost Human and mm-hmm. something else that just came yeah. out, Mind's Eye, which is doing yeah. quite well. And Mind's of, Eye. And of course you but all, um, thank you, you so much for having me on. And, and uh, uh, you know, I hope everybody checks out the film. It comes out tomorrow on, on VOD and it'll be everywhere. They, and, uh, they sure as heck better. And you better come back on the show again. I will indeed. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Debbie. A joy, Quincy. And I will okay, talk to you too. soon. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was the fabulous Quincy Rose, Friends F and Friends F and Friends, on iTunes tomorrow, available on VOD and digital. And now, it is a great thrill to have the wonderful David Hartman. Hello, David. Hey, Debbie. How are you? Well, I am so thrilled to get to spend another week showing love to Phantasm. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is such a treat. You know, I was following the Beyond Fest, everything that was happening down at the Egyptian last week. Mm-hmm. The fans are loving Ravager. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> they are loving Ravager, and I can't blame them. I, You know, I've been a fan of this series ever since I was a little kid, so, you know, it's kind of a dream uh, come true. I haven't even got to even... Uh, feel like I've been making a Phantasm film. We've been working so hard for so long. It's just now that I'm like, oh my gosh, I've worked on a Phantasm film. <laughs> but you know, you, yours is an interesting story as to how you got to work on this film. Because like you said, you, you grew up watching Phantasm films. Absolutely. And as a kid, you watched them and now here you are after years in animation doing, okay, 
I have to say it again, Tigger and Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> you know, I mean, you go from Tigger and Winnie the Pooh, Transformers, Astro Boy reboot, all which as much as I loved Astro love the Astro Boy reboot, it doesn't the the original Japanese from the 50s was just Oh, absolutely. Nothing tops that. Um, that was always my favorite. That was actually the theme yeah. of, of our play in second grade. <laughs> I still remember that. Yes. Uh, but tell us the story about how you became, because for Don to pass this franchise off into your hands to direct, this has been his baby Absolutely. for 30 plus it, it, years now. It's pretty daunting to even think about. He He's had options to do other stuff, and he's always, you know, uh, kept this close to his heart. This is his, his baby. Um, you know, I met Don uh, through a friend of a friend kind of uh, thing and uh, ended up helping on Bubba Hotep. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up doing uh, some of the uh, effects work and some artwork on it and stuff like that. Um, and he gave uh, gave me like a visual effects supervisor credit, and it was Fantastic, and that was a dream come true, just getting to work with Don. Um, but we stayed friends after that, and you know, I helped him on uh, Showtime uh, Masters of Horror, doing storyboards and uh, stuff like that. Um, but I would shoot like little short films every weekend. I just love filming. I just love telling stories. Um, so I would just do this, and I would just like bombard his inbox with these these little stupid videos I'm doing, you know, whether they were comedy or straight horror or, or what. Um, and uh, one day, you know, Don and I were talking on the phone, and it was just like, hey, why don't we go out and shoot something this weekend just for fun? Um, you know, there's no executives. There's no, you know, um, if uh, you don't like it, you don't have to show it to anybody, basically. Um you know, but let's just go have fun and, you know, practice some different camera moves and experiment. And Don's like, hey, that's great. Uh, why don't we get Reggie involved and do a phantasm thing? You know, and we're like, oh, cool. And in my mind, I'm thinking, hey, Don's going to direct this. I'm going to go watch the master at work. <laughs> you know, I'll set up lights and stuff like that. So I, I was just super excited. So I kept pushing this thing to, to happen. And, uh, you know, we start going and we're getting ready to, you know, go out and shoot. And Don's like, oh, by the way, you're directing, right? <laughs> I'm like, what? And he's like, no, it's your problem now. You came up with this idea. You're directing. Um, so we did this short, and which uh, ended up in the film. It was a, a scene with uh, Reggie in the cabin mm-hmm. uh, meeting a girl, kind of derivative of normal Reggie uh, actions. Um, and so we shot this thing. And it, Don was like, hey, this came out really good. Why don't we shoot another one? So we go out, like, uh, you know, another weekend or two, and we, we shoot another scene. And he's like, hey, this is a lot of fun. So we keep going. But we took two years off after that. Don went to do John Dies at the end. Which you also did an animated sequence on. Yes, yeah. And I got a cameo in it, too. I die in the, the pit <laughs> by the spiders. <laughs> and also got to uh, design the meat monster and do its voice. So, <gasps> the meat monster yeah. and John Dies at the end is so cool. Yeah, so I, I got to do his voice. I, that was so much fun. Um, and I went to go work on this Transformers Prime um, show. And, like, so two years later, where we're both kind of comfortable where we are again, we're like, hey, what are we going to do with all that footage? Are we going to put it on a DVD or whatever? Um, let's do a web series or something. And, and Don's like, you know what? I've been thinking about it. We're going to make part five. 
And I'm all like, yes, finally, Don's <laughs> going to make part five. And he's like, you're directing. <laughs> and I'm just like, what? And, uh, you know, part of me is like, no, Don, you should direct this. This is your baby. And then the other half of me is like, hey, stupid, you got an opportunity <laughs> here. <laughs> um, but seriously, uh, Don, like immediately we went to work. Like the next day, Don and I are, are fleshing out the script and, and planning our next uh, shoots. And from there, it was just hardcore jumping in work uh, and I haven't even really had much time to reflect on it mm-hmm. you know and it, we just jumped in but that's really how I got uh, got into this I, I already directed a quarter of the movie and didn't know it <laughs> <laughs> well you know something I find that I love about uh, Ravager is that this is a very complex story it's a very ambitiously told story to wrap up the the franchise as it now stands Really delving into evil, delving into reality uh, and interpretations of realities. Uh, Plus, you use a lot of, you've got practical effects versus digital effects. Ambitious on so many levels. And then, of course, you guys didn't know it at the time, but this has turned out to be a very poignant film as well. Yes, yes. With the passing of Angus Scrimm. So how did you, what was it like working with Don and developing this script with the ambition and all the complexity to it. I, I mean, it came for us very natural. I mean, we already had some scenes shot. So the idea came from how are we going to use this footage that we've shot and work it into a story that's just not a guy walking around, mm-hmm. um, you know, which was essentially what the web series kind of was. It was going to be called Reggie's, Reggie Tales, and, you know, <laughs> going to follow him and his adventures, and it was just going to be kind of a monster of the week kind of uh, thing. But when we got into this, you know, Don and I were really um, diving into, you know, what we loved about the first film and the sequels. And, you know, for me, the first film was always about a kid and his innocence, and uh, he's dealing with the, you know, death of his parents and then possibly his brother or, you know, we don't mm-hmm. really know at the end. And, it, you know, the the film basically is made up of, of these little vignetted scenes and, and this uh, slightly different um, editing style, you know, and I really loved it and it made it unsettling. And so Don and I were talking, you know, in the second film, the third film, the fourth film, these characters have kind of lost um, some of their innocence mm-hmm. that they've seen a lot. You know, and, uh, you know, Don and I were talking, like, let's not hide the fact that the characters have aged. You know, it's it's been too long. Everyone looks older. Um, you know, we should grasp that and run with it. Um, you know, and, and we've all know somebody or have dealt with somebody who has Alzheimer's or dementia. Um, you know, and I, I had a family member with it, and, you know, they would say some weird stuff, and it just kind of made sense to uh, bring that innocence back in, uh, you know, with a character dealing with this and Alzheimer's, and, it, you know, or is their mind uh, in a different dimension, but their body's here, is their consciousness somewhere else, and what they're saying is actually what they're seeing. It, mm-hmm. Who knows, you know, but... Um, yeah, it, it got really deep. <laughs> well, it really for does. For Don and I, and that's why we throw in guns and <laughs> giant, giant spheres attacking uh, the cities. Uh, you know, we still wanted some of that uh, fun macho stuff in there. But well, uh, and you also create this great ambiguity because this is essentially Reggie's journey. 
This is really Reggie's story as he goes in and out of these various realities um, promulgated by the tall man. But we never know, is... Are, is he really, are we doing the time travel, the reality travel? Are we tessering uh, between different dimensions? Or all, is all of this in his mind? And you never really give us, you never tell us. You leave it to everybody's imagination. Absolutely. And there's, there's little, you know, if you really dive into what the characters are saying, there's little clues. But, you know, Don and I, when we wrote this, you, you know, Phantasm's always had more questions than answers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we wanted to keep that. There, you know, you can't really take Phantasm and give a definitive ending. Right. Um, you know, when we set out to start this, we never planned on this actually being the, the last film. That's kind of come naturally, you know, with the, the passing of Angus and, and just how long the film took to, to create. But, you know, with the ambiguity and, and all that, it's... Uh, Part of Phantasm for me was talking, staying up late at night with friends after watching a Phantasm film, and we would discuss what it meant (laughs) Mm -hmm. to us. And everybody had different perceptions of what it meant based on their own experiences. And, you know, Don and I wanted to have that. So even though I have a perception in my mind of what's actually happening, Mm -hmm. uh, what I think the ending is, it's been a lot of fun reading online, seeing what other people's interpretations are. There's even interpretations where I'm like, "Whoa, I didn't think of that." You know, that actually, <laughs> that's actually really a, a strong theory. Um, and then there's other ones, you know, where I'm like, "No, nah, you're way off." <laughs> well, um, you know, you're but, vid- but there's a lot of clues there to to, to help you um, come to a conclusion. And there are a lot of clues through your visuals as well. This is a very it's a visually dynamic film. One thing that you oh, do keep you. the one thing you do keep the same is you do keep the silver sphere ball. Um, you know, plowing into everybody's head with a, you know, <laughs> that stays the same. But then, whereas Don, when the franchise started out, he was making great use of negative space to create yeah. a sense of foreboding and unknown. With this one, you really open it up. We've come full circle through the circle of life, Reggie's story, and now we've got a lot of more wide open spaces, desolation, or vibrancy. Yes. How important, what, what kind of conversations did you have with yourself in, as you were designing the visual look of Ravager? Well, I mean, we kind of play with this in the film, like lightness and darkness. You know, mm-hmm. we have, uh, you know, not to give spoilers, but, you know, scenes with Angus, we have them in a white space and then a dark space. And, you know, it's that contrast. And in the film, the original Phantasm, there is a lot of black and a lot of negative mm-hmm. uh, space. And, you know, Don and I were talking, you know, some of it's out of necessity of doing a low-budget film, and it's much easier to shoot during the day than at night. Sure. Um, certainly that played into it at some point. But, you know, for me, it was like Reggie in the desert in these vast one-point perspective-type shots. But but lighting, you know, we never seen these villains um, really in the daytime. It's always been in the mausoleum and at night. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Don are like, what if we actually saw these spheres going, you know, running throughout the day? And to me, that also implies that they're they're more in control now. You know, they've they've uh, come out of the darkness and, mm-hmm. and they're they're more around us and um, they're not hiding. Um, I don't know if that answers your question at all, but it it definitely. Uh, played into it, and definitely color uh, plays into it. I'm an illustrator, uh, 
first before I've been directing. And, you know, I, I really like vibrant, <laughs> almost mm-hmm. garish uh, colors and how they work and uh, some of the emotions you can uh, get out of those colors. No, you do a beautiful job with the colors. And even in various sequences where we'll find Reggie in a hospital and you've got like a sickly green on the wall, you know, not a cheery hospital room at all, but uh, one with great light coming through, you know, very thin chiffon curtains. Yeah. Um, and yeah. there you pay attention to every little detail in your visual palette here. Oh, thank you. I mean, I storyboard every single shot, you know, being an illustrator, um, you know, you compose the shots. Even, you know, we got handheld shots and and mm-hmm. and we got shots on sticks and, and stuff. But, you know, every shot is composed. And, uh, I mean, I, I, it's kind of weird to think about it. Actually, uh, this morning I was just going through a bunch of papers and found, like, hey, here's the car sequence, <laughs> the storyboards. <laughs> and, you know, they're just a mess in my office. Um, but it's fun to look at because it's like setting up the camera and block I block mm-hmm. everything. I set up uh, where I would like the lights. Uh, I have it all on paper first. Um, and it's really just out of if I get make myself sick from being so stressed about <laughs> shooting that uh, the crew can go on without me and uh, get the shots that I desire uh, if I'm throwing up somewhere. You know, now, that, now, luckily, that hasn't happened, but uh, <laughs> I, I just like to be that prepared. Um, really, if I get everything that's on paper, I know I have enough to tell a story. And then it frees my mind up to be a little more creative on set. Instead of trying to fix problems, I'm, I'm able to uh, think creatively on uh, you know, new shots or, or take advantage of uh, an opportunity that, were, that comes up. Well, so, si- um, since you brought it up, David, I have to go there. <laughs> the Cuda car, the Barracuda. This yes. this car, it has survived, you know, through all of through all the all the phantasms, and now this is one souped up car. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it it is gorgeous. What what were your considerations for all the bells and whistles, and well, and who did who actually did built the car? Was it Bob? Did Bob Ivy build it, or was he just no, driving? No, it was my my wife. <laughs> oh, uh, the, all right. Talk. She is Talk. the handyman of my family. <laughs> um, it, it's really funny. The you know the, the theme itself it was came from um, Roger Avery. Um, you know from a Oscar winner for Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote a script uh, a long while ago, and uh, that was an element in there. Don absolutely loved, and uh, I think it was called the Battle Cuda. Um, you know, and we were like, oh, we always going to have this kind of Mad Max version of this muscle car. Um, so Don, you know, was like, see what you can do. And my wife builds props and, and stuff like that. And she loves uh, doing these kind of projects. Um, so Don brings the car over, and it's like in my garage for like two months while we're, uh, my wife's uh, building these armor plates and putting Gatling guns on. It's like, <laughs> You know, I did a little design of what I would like, and then she takes it and uh, amplifies it. But uh, I got to tell you, as a fan of the series, I would run out at night and sit in the car. And <laughs> 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 like a little little kid, I'm just sitting there, you know, acting like I'm driving this thing. It, it was so cool. <laughs> oh, it, I mean, it is so cool when you see this on screen. And with some, a lot of the camera angles that you use to depict the car, 
Absolutely incredible. Oh, Abs- thank you. Just so much fun. Well, you got to use those wide lenses, you know, and get the air intakes on the car and, you know, those kind of things. Uh, oh, that was a lot of fun. You were like a kid in a candy store with this one. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, like I said, it, it, you know, we started as a web series, so we could really plan out these scenes as little vignettes. So, mm-hmm. you know, you always had a light at the end of the tunnel with each of these scenes because it's like, oh, I do the scene and then we're done. It wasn't until we became, you know, full-featured uh, film that um, we really got, delved into the uh, the story aspect, mm-hmm. which was a lot of the kind of the park scenes with an, an aged Reggie uh, uh, and Michael Baldwin. Mm-hmm. How exciting was it for you, being a fan, having grown up on the Phantasm ser- series, to actually get to now work with all of the original characters, with Reggie Bannister, with Michael Baldwin, with Our Lady in Lavender, Cat Lester, with Beloved Angus. And then, of course, we get two characters who come back into this one that we haven't seen. We've got yeah. Stephen Jutras is here as Chunky, and he is just adorable and just a kick <laughs> in the butt. And then Gloria Lynn Henry as Rocky, she's now brought back. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it's a dream come true, um, but it's funny, you know, I have to separate my brain. I, I'm able to turn off my fanboy mm-hmm. <laughs> and go into director mode, you know, where I, I can't geek out too much on set and lose control. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, behind closed doors, I'm just like, oh, my gosh, I'm getting to work with these people. And, and now they're friends. You know, I was, I was so uh, excited to get Michael Baldwin and Bill Thornberry in there. Um, you know, I met Reggie a, a few times, and we were working on these short films together. Um, but it really felt like a phantasm when we get the other guys in. And then, of course, uh, Angus Scrim came on. And, uh, you know, I was scared to death uh, to, to meet Angus. <laughs> and uh, we met at a, a cheesecake factory. It was me, Don, and Angus to go over some of the lines we wrote. Um, just because I, I, you know, I really wanted Angus's blessing on this. Mm-hmm. If, if he was not happy or didn't want to do it or something, to me, the whole project falls apart. Um, it ha- he has to be a part of it, and he has to um, give his blessing. And we read the li- he read the lines, and he told, looked at me and was like, "This is exactly what the tall man would say," you know. And I'm, I'm just like tearing up (laughs) you know it it was fantastic he was a great man to work with and he really loved the uh the story and uh i did get to show the movie to him uh before he passed uh once we knew he was sick uh the movie's about wrapped up and uh we did a special screening just for him um and uh i picked him up if you have a minute i'll tell you the story he he, i picked him up at his uh house to, to go to the screening and he was like you know in this you know classic uh tall man voice he's just like david who's going to drive me home tonight and uh i was like well angus if you love the movie i'll drive you home if you hate the movie uh don's gonna drive you home <laughs> I, I i wouldn't be able to take that if he uh he hated it uh emotionally and uh so we watched the movie and he's just got this straight face not showing any emotion while watching it and i'm just sweating bullets you know sitting there and white knuckling my fists and uh after the movie he comes up and to me he's like david you will be driving me home and uh, that was just the greatest feeling and and we had a very 
deep conversation where the, the film inspired him to talk about his own mortality. Um, on the drive home, you know, for a good hour, we're talking about life and death. And, um, you know, now watching uh, these scenes with Angus in there, they become very poignant to me and uh, are, are actually really hard to, uh, to watch uh, just based on these other experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well... I I just think it's it's a fabulous film. If you are fans of the Phantasm franchise, this is a must see. It's even it's even a good first film to see because it'll make you want to go back and see the other ones. And it's in theaters right now. Yes. Yes. Yep. And, and also available. Uh, iTunes, Amazon, Video on Demand, Directv. Uh, I think it's on almost all platforms great as well it should be well thank you thank you so much debbie Um, (laughs) it means a lot (laughs) now will you be directing another live action are you going back to uh, animation you you know what i've always loved live action that that's always been my dream but uh you know i can i'm an illustrator and uh, i was able to get into the business quickly with uh, animation and then animation's been so good to me and Mm -hmm. fallen in love with it um so I'm still working on a Transformers show right now, but I'm definitely looking for the next project. And, uh, you know, would uh, love to get a, a bigger budget. <laughs> uh, well, David, I can't thank you enough for joining me today on no, Behind the Lens. thank you. This has been fun. Uh, I, I, I love talking this stuff. <laughs> and, and I will. Well, I'm going to have you back on the show to talk more about animation. No, yeah, sure. I would. I would love to. Ah, uh, David, thank you so much, and we oh, will be you, in Debbie. touch soon. Definitely. Thank you so much. Thanks, David. All right. Bye-bye. And that was the fabulous David Hartman, co-writer and director of Phantasm Ravager. And, okay, we only have 20 seconds left of the show today. It went by fast. So thank you to Quincy Rose. Thank you to David Hartman. Next week, we're going to have Mary Bonnie uh, with us and Dory Barton talking girl flu. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.